This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Yo, technology, what is it all about? Whenever there's chaos, there's opportunity. Just remember that. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, there's no opportunity. No question. Whoever is going to craft the right models, at least from our lens, from controls and monitoring and controls around data, there's going to be whole new fields kind of emerging out of it, right? Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. It, yes, it's really me, Danny, not Danny the bot. I promise. But hey, maybe I am these days. Who knows? I hope you are all doing very well. I am great. And this week, we have a great guest to talk about what else artificial intelligence and in particular, one of the critical aspects of how these systems are built, kind of the critical aspect, and that is, of course, data. Rehan Jalil is the founder of Security with an I. And what he has been doing over the last few years, long before the world had even heard about ChatGPT, was kind of building a data command center, which is a way for companies to grab hold of all these vast streams of data being generated and coursing through their systems and really getting control of it. And this is a big deal Because as we have previously discussed on this podcast, we really have arrived at this data is the new oil moment. People have been saying that for years, but it wasn't really true. I mean, we were generating lots of data, but, you know, and making use of it. But now in this new age of AI, they're creating real superpowers. And who controls that data? How much these AI developers are going to pay for it, if at all, is rapidly becoming the critical question because none of these things can be built without it. And of course, it's also when you get to this age of AI, also talking about cybersecurity and all those new threats, a little bit of which we covered last week. It's a very big deal. So security is right at the heart of all of this, working with companies and helping them kind of just get a much better handle, understanding and control of their data and how it is used, where it's going, how, when, why, etc. And Rehan himself has a great story. He came all the way from Pakistan to the West Coast, 
started a couple companies with great success before this one, and now building his third right when we find ourselves again in this AI moment when data really is, finally, the new oil, for real this time. So we cover all of that and more, so I will now just stop talking and hand you over to my conversation with Rihan Jalil of Security with an I. Enjoy. This is a very basic question, but what are you guys doing in a nutshell? Because data and data security in particular, especially at these times, my wife as a lawyer in the AI world and her kind of head is spinning all the time about, okay, how do we, how do we navigate this new world when, you know, data is being used for these really interesting, new, powerful tools, but also not everybody's comfortable with it. So I'd love to understand kind of where you guys sit in this whole matrix. Absolutely. I think that that's exactly is the, the puzzle we're trying to solve for the enterprises because all enterprises, by the nature of being digital, they need to collect data, they need to process data, need to create value with data, they need to serve with data. Without that, there is almost no service for many of the uh, enterprises. The issue really comes is that as the value of this data grows and it goes to all kinds of systems globally, yeah. other side is that you, there are obligations for the enterprises on this data. First of all, they have to keep data secure. Right? They cannot lose it. We're trying to just solve this puzzle by creating a data command center for organizations. They have full visibility on where the data is, what is sensitive, what are the global laws, how does it map into this data, what they should do to not lose the data, or what they should do to call it responsible use of the data. And we call it as a unified data controls. So you look at, have contextual intelligence around sensitive data, wherever it is, and then on top of it, apply all these controls to keep it safe and compliant and do it in a way that you can build trust with the consumers, just like you were mentioning. For every consumer, it's a, a bit of a puzzle to represent to the, on their websites or on their companies to actually stay compliant and build trust and do it in a way that they don't have to make it super simple for them to actually stay compliant. So data command center, that's interesting. So for example, because you know, I cover tech, but I'm a little fuzzy on the details here. But so say, for example, like um, Twitter or Reddit have both said to a lot of these AI model companies, like, you cannot use our stuff. Or if you use our stuff, you have to pay us for it. And trying to police when you talk about a command center, I mean, is it like you can see the siphon of data just being extracted by a company or whatever? Like, how what does that look like and how easy is that to manage? Because I feel like, you know, whether we've had on this podcast, uh, the founder of Stability AI, you know, they created Stable Diffusion and they're being sued by Getty because they're like, you took 2 million or 2 billion, I can't remember how many of our images without our permission and you didn't pay us for it, you need to pay us for it. And it does feel like there's, this is like a, again, in this kind of new AI age in which we're entering, this feels like a real critical point that a lot of people are trying to figure out. The way you have to do it is to, first of all, know all the data, in particular if there is sensitive data, know the sources, know the consent, know the laws, know your internal policies, build the contextual graphs around it, and that becomes your source of truth. What can I do with it? And then you apply controls on top. And that's the whole concept that we actually talk about is what we call data command center. Because to an organization that is collecting data, using data, doing whatever with it, this actually gives them the full visibility and instruments to say, can I use it or not? Same for Gen AI. 
almost every enterprise internally is going to use the data for some kind of a gen AI, right? Because whether for customer support, whether for sales, whether you know if you're a, if you're a medical facility for your patients, is going to be used. Which means even more than ever, this is more important that you know what you're feeding into these data models and what have you already fed to these data models over time. Because they're going to be basically answering based on that and whether they're supposed to be answering based on that or not. So the governance on data and intelligence data has become even more paramount before you're starting feeding into these models because as it goes to these models, they're going to basically pass it on as answers based on prompts and all. That's really what the charter of the company is, to enable innovation. It's not that you can put you know, a hard-code gate on it. You can say, cannot use the data. It's all about intelligent use of data in a way that you don't have, you know, you don't have actually anxiety. Simple example B, if you have a car, and if the car doesn't have a steering wheel and brakes, you really can drive. So with the steering wheel and the brakes, whereas accelerator is how fast you can actually go use the data. But you need both. <laughs> and when did, you, when did you start the company? We started the company uh, in 2019. So it's been, uh, about four and a half year old company, and with the same same vision of enabling all all the controls around based in Silicon Valley. Yeah, what have you seen, especially in the last year? You know, because what ChatGPT came out in November, and now every company is an AI company, and it's this whole bubble, etc. But it does feel, to your point, that every company, you know, we're going to have this proliferation of large language models and then just like you know specific verticals for different companies for different industries etc it does feel like there's like this explosion of these intelligent agents what have you seen just in terms of like what your world and what that experience is as companies try to kind of reckon with all of this since the gpt and the chat gpt came along it opened the imagination and disbelief of what's possible. Nobody probably believed that would be possible in, in such fashion. It opened, opened the minds. Everyone is now, humans being creative, they're trying to see how can I apply it to my, my actually functions. It's possible. The number one thing for them, everyone was desires to use it. Number one thing is how do I do it safely? How do I do it without losing the data? How do I do it without being in the news? And what are the recourse for me? It is a big tailwind, actually, for a company like us, because not only that we have been using ourselves Gen AI for some time before the GPDN came along, because these techniques existed, now it's about enabling others to use it in a more and safe fashion. So there is a whole set of new regulations on AI governance, but all it requires is full understanding of your data first. If you don't understand the inventory of your data and you don't have controls on it, our job has been to make sure that you get full understanding of the data, but mapping now all the AI governance laws that are coming from different countries, mapping it, infusing it with your understanding of data, and what you desire to do as a company, your own internal guidelines and principles and your ethos about it, infusing that with this understanding of the data, that's what we're seeing. I would say very rapidly over the last few months, a significant portion of our meetings with the customers were coming in. It is now about yeah, you guys talk about controls and, you know, safe use it now. This is, you know, if you can help us, how this could be used. And no question, we're seeing that across the verticals, across uh, in the globe, I would say, there's a general desire to actually, you know, make the best use of these models. Can we go all the way back to when you were a kid? Where'd you grow up? How'd you end up out here in, uh, on the West Coast? <laughs> By accident. <laughs> so, truly. Actually, I had no idea, truly, that, you know, it's such an amazing place. Uh, I went to my grad school in Purdue, which is in Midwest. 
by coincidence, at that time, it was boom times back in the day. So you'd get all kinds of interview question interview calls. When were, when were the boom times? What year was this? This was 98. Oh, okay. Yeah. And <laughs> this is the dot-com yep. you know, boom yep, yep, times yep. going on. You'll get so, so many interview requests at that time. Uh, recent graduates should be very lucky. So, you know, they had a lot of interviews from different places, but Sun Microsystem was an amazing company. In our lab, there used to be Sun workstations that weren't working processors, and they were building a GPU at that time, first, you know, one of the first multi-core GPUs. Yeah. And I just ended up taking it without knowing you'll end up at a, a magical place like Silicon Valley. Sometimes, you know, things work out that way. Before Purdue, where did you grow up? I grew up in Karachi. Oh, wow. I was born there. I grew up in Karachi. I did my undergrad from there. And then I came to Purdue for grad school. And then, you know, by accident, I ended up in Silicon Valley. And um, after Sun Microsystems, startup was the name of the game. I mean, literally, or joined another startup. And uh, once you realize how fast you can create new value as part of the startups, that has been my journey since then. It's been close to now, you know, 20 years. And is there, uh, and pardon my ignorance, is there an equivalent of like an IIT system in Pakistan or like, did you, because we've had uh, Naveen on the podcast before and I've had several Indian founders and they talk, I mean, I still find it hard to understand what it is to kind of get through that system and to kind <laughs> of excel and to kind of pass the test and to study for the test and all of that stuff. But it feels very stressful and very, very difficult. But I don't know <laughs> if there's something similar that you had to go through before you got to Purdue. Yeah, no, I think um, IIT is an amazing uh, set of schools, right? And uh, India has done a phenomenal job in putting that and operationalizing it. I think the underlying thing that drives it, I would say, very similar to exist there, especially when I grew up, it was a scarcity of schools in some ways. So the very few schools, engineering schools existed. Mm. One thing I have to give credit that it was all on merit. And if you want to get into that school, you got to be top, top, top of your high school. And because there are not many slots. And underlying is just that. It's a selection uh, process, which is rigorous, right? And IITs have done even more, I would say, and standards are very high. So when you actually have a highly motivated kids, you know, then they know that these are some of the best institutions of the, of the country. And to get in, you have, to, you have to compete. And if the system works, then there is no side doors to get in. Yeah. Then you're going to get really good talent. And the magic, I think, in these institutions lie is you bring the best kids and have them collaborate with each other. And of course, compete with each other too, but more, I would say, collaborate with each other. Yeah. Very similar, I would say, underlying principle exists. I don't think in terms of the, in, in the structure that has been created in India, that is replicated. But now some very good uh, schools actually exist in parks, not under one brand name. But if you want to get into those schools, you really got to be top of top of your high school. And is it a similar thing where you have to like a test, an entrance test that you have to study a year for and, and kind of it takes over your life? <laughs> yeah, it's very similar in a little different way. You have to take a board exam. And in that, only the top students at that time just could get in. There was only one school in that city. It is in the largest city and it was only one school. And if you don't get in there... Good luck, right? Because right. these other options are not as good. And how many, how many slots were available? At that time, it wasn't that many slots. It was a couple of hundred slots. In Karachi? Yes. <laughs> so I'm in computer science and LWE. There'll be that's the slots. There'll be like you know, 200, 250 slots. 
And there's what? Karachi is like a city, like a mega city, isn't it? I mean, how many million people is that? Yeah, it is. It is a mega city. It's one of the largest <laughs> cities on the planet. Now there are some really good schools. I'm te- I'm going back. I'm dating myself, right? But you're going. You're going for two hundred slots. One of those two hundred, basically. <laughs> That's it. If you don't, if you don't fit in there, so and what? What's the end result? The kids that you're getting in with those schools, they're just they're just mind blowingly brilliant, right? And um, and then you get to work with them, you get to collaborate with them, and you learn, teach each other. And that experience lives with you. It is very entrepreneurial to begin with mm-hmm. <laughs> because you're on your own. To get into the school, you're on your own. There is not going to be any side door. There's not going to be any essay or anything. There's no subjectiveness into it. Score is the only thing. Oh. Uh, you get the score, you're in. There is no other extracurricular is going to be counted for. None <laughs> of that. It doesn't matter if you're part of the Glee Club. That doesn't really help you out. <laughs> doesn't matter your parents are legacy or non-legacy. Right. Or you're, you know, basketball, none of that matters. It mattered. I don't know what it is now. So what it really did was, you know, you had highly motivated, very hungry, very, people were really putting work. And other thing was, once you go in there, now, it doesn't always work for many students sometimes because they may be there because they're sharp, but then that may not be the destiny. They may not love engineering. Yeah. The kids that actually love to build and the love engineering and the love to create, they thrive in these environments. They really, really thrive in such environment, right? So I think you have to watch out. You could be really sharp to crack the, crack the testing, but at the end, that may not be your destiny. I mean, that's not what you may want to do. In my case, I mean, it just worked out very well because that's exactly what I, I was uh, loved doing. And I discovered it as part of my undergrad from day one. As I joined this engineering school, I figured that that's exactly what I want to do and had really a lot of fun. Yeah. Do you remember the day that you found out that you got in? Oh, yeah, definitely. I, the day I found out, and the day, of course, uh, same for Purdue. I was very happy when I got admitted to Purdue. I mean, these are things, and of course, those are the happy days. And then what you, very early days, um, uh, I, this is going back, you know, um, early 90s, one of the first and virus had come out. It was DOS, the system mm. viruses. And the kids were just building these antiviruses like back in the day in the school together. Like school projects. One of my friends, school projects. When, one of the very first antiviruses, a friend of mine, TZ and uh, Tanbir and, uh, and uh, Alonfid, I was part of the group, you know, wrote the very, very first antivirus software. Wow. This is back. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the very first antivirus software. It was called, uh, Brain was the name of the virus and it was, Antivirus called anti-brain. Yeah, I mean those are fun times. Now, I promise we'll move on, but I just find the I find these stories of trying to kind of get through those systems. So I think it is it is really kind of formative. And as you say, you once you get in, then you're exposed to this universe of people who are similarly minded and also extremely bright and ambitious. And I think it really sets people on a path. But the that test is it like an all day test? Is it a three day test? Like what is it? No, it's in, in India, it's a little different. In, in there, it's like a board exams. Mm. So the entire, uh, everyone takes the same exam. So, and it, you have to score in that exam. Now, systems have evolved since then. All the high schoolers take one board exam. And within that, you have to be rated super high. If you're among the top of, you know, top few slots, uh, top few hundred, then you have an option to go into, uh, at that time, you have the option to go into the school. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. 
the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. And was the plan always to get to America? No. Actually, it's a discovery process. Uh, so when, when I did high school, I had no, I had no clue, honestly. But when, once you uh, go to the, your undergrad, then you are with like-minded people who are looking at research happening in different places. And you, you're very much in touch with what's going on. Again, there's no, there's no internet at that time, right? Or very early, I would say, at that time. But you have publications that you would be subscribing to. You'll go to a library. So you'll always aspire to actually be part of that creation process which clearly was certain parts of the world in which a lot of research and a lot of even books were getting written, papers were coming from there, and your textbooks would be you know, coming from professors. And I remember one of the professor's books at Purdue, he had written that book, William Hyde, and he was at Purdue. You know, that book was amazing. So my mind was set on that if I could end up in that school and where this professor is, that's how it goes sometimes. You get uh, inspired by, the, by the, the people who have done amazing work. But before I went to the engineering school, I actually had no idea. I was simply wanted to get to the engineering school. That was the only you know, single-minded <laughs> goal. <laughs> the mind opened up after that, I would say. And so you arrive in Silicon Valley in the midst. That's actually, I'm from California, and I, was in, I graduated in 99. So I moved back to the Bay Area in 99. So I was right before everything went terribly <laughs> right before the crash you must have been uh, i mean you were in the midst of all of that what was your first you oh you said it was sun right and what's interesting sun is now the former sun campus is now meta's campus that's right <laughs> that's exactly right if you go back in time in a lab it used to be sun workstations and they were the best it was one of like the the companies of the time i remember seeing uh, scott mcneely on 60 Minutes, and they were like, there was like you, and it was like him versus Bill Gates, and they had this like kind of competition, et cetera. But now, you know, as we know, this place kind of, if you get left behind, it's it's pretty brutal. And Sun Microsystems basically has disappeared. That's right. Um, it, was, it was dot in the dot com. They call, used to call it that's dot right. I remember that. That's right. And then so you've been working with, we both know a lot of people at Mayfield. I think this is a, your third company that they have funded that you've worked on. Is that correct? That's correct. We have a very good history going back to the first startup that I did. It was called Vicorus. Vicorus was actually building the 4G backend infrastructure because if you remember, high-speed internet used to be like either wired or fixed line, you know, fixed wireless. Yep. And then new techniques came where you can do very high speed on mobile, 
But then how do you keep it mobile? Sitting in a car and train C, you actually have to build very explicit backend infrastructure for it called Packet Core. And then you actually had to have very specific traffic management capabilities. You know, what kind of, uh, what kind of internet traffic is going? How do you manage it? What kind of apps can work on it and so forth? That's what we built at high performance. And we built it a little ahead of the curve in the sense that we built in anticipation that people need high performance and all that. And uh, luckily, iPhone showed up. And iPhone showed up when we actually had the product almost there. Yeah, and that was that was really a good thing for the company because such technologies would be needed. We started the company back in 2005, and then iPhone showed up a few years later. So by the time you hit the product, iPhone shows up. and Yeah, so you're good. So And did you sell that company? Yeah, that company was acquired by Tel Labs. Tel Labs was a big uh, telco equipment and tackle infrastructure company based here in the U.S. also in, in Chicago. Uh, yeah, so they acquired that company because they, were, they used to sell to mobile and other telcos. And then what? And then you actually help them a little bit. And then you start thinking, you know, what are other ways to create value? What well, we're seeing this now, we, we're seeing the SaaS services that are everywhere. At that time, that wasn't the case. People used to buy licensed shrink wrap software, deploy it, and then operate in their own data centers. But there was very early sign that the whole model will flip, where people will host the, the software and you will still be placed subscription. Yeah. So if you would do that, then the entire security stack that is needed for such things, it would change. I mean, that was the anticipation. The way actually it hit me, I, between that, I went back to school uh, for business mm-hmm. to, to HBS for AMP program. And there, what I noticed that many of the MBA students, they were just using Google Drive um, and all the projects were there. So, and that was very early, very, very early. Dropbox was coming, Google Drive was coming. And so we thought, okay, if this thing takes off, it means the entire security model has to be different because data is somebody else. User is coming from home. They start you logging in from your office and server is not inside your data center. So you're not protected inside it. Your data is somewhere third party and literally people will come from your home browsers. What would the security look like Mm. for it? And we came up with a model. This is back in 2013 that you need a completely different paradigm. Eventually, the name of that whole technology became cloud access security. How would you provide security for it? And the company we started was called Elastica and became a market leader. It was a definition, it was market defining among the market defining companies that how would you do security for applications running by third parties, what's called SaaS services? In the cloud, basically. In the cloud, exactly. Yeah. So security in the cloud for the apps in the cloud. And you sold that one too. Yeah, that was that company became quite uh, interesting and became a market leader. And then uh, I was also uh, merged with a company called Bluecode. Bluecode was looking to go public. They did file to go public, but then they were acquired as a joint company by Symantec. And you know, Symantec acquired uh, Bluecode for about four point seven billion dollars. And that's how the entire team that is here at security, we were at Symantec. And we started it together after after Symantec, yeah. And so going back to kind of where we started at the beginning, you started this company before the iPhone moment, it feels like. And now we have this kind of iPhone moment in terms of Gen AI and all of these new requirements and challenges that that um, brings with it. And I was just messing around. I was looking at photorealistic images that you can create with a text prompt. 
you have language bots that can simulate human-like conversation, and you have voice synthesis bots now where I can upload 30 seconds of my voice and those bots can say anything in my voice. And it feels like... (laughs) I just it, the mind boggles when you think about how all the ways this stuff can be misused and like it's a whole new waterfront of potential fraud and misuse. Totally. So I'm just wondering like how you kind of like think about that because also when you talk about a command center, it's like there's the laws, there's all this data flowing in all these different directions, and then all of these new tools and capabilities that are being developed by the week. It feels like I don't know. It's I don't really know how you build a company in the midst of that or build a capability when it's all changing so quickly. <laughs> Whenever there's chaos, there's opportunity. Just remember that. <laughs> Otherwise, there's no opportunity. Instability, there's no opportunity. <laughs> so opportunity only comes with chaos. I would say that's where startups have op- uh, opportunities. And in this case, of course, large companies also have opportunities, but no question. If whoever is going to craft the right models of, at least from our lens, from controls, and monitoring and controls around data, there's going to be whole new fields kind of emerging out of it, right? Mm. So one is, of course, the examples you're giving is very consumer. And on one hand, it's very consumer, the social effect of it, no question about that. And that needs to be seen. But there are direct impl- implication on enterprises also because they use many of these things for their authentication systems and the, how they prevent fraud and all that. So direct implication there. And these models are proliferating so fast that you gotta make, want to make sure they're not malicious by de- design. Because you took a model, you don't know, is it malicious by design? Because now you can find malware. By inspecting the code, can you inspect these models? They're not malicious by design. And if, what are they answering? When you ask a question, uh, by design they're actually answering something which is malicious? Or by mistake they're answering it? And how do you filter all that at the exit, exit of these uh, responses? When you feed into this data, most important thing is what you feed into the data, you got to be super careful because like human mind, if something goes to your human mind, you cannot forget it. Yeah. If I tell, tell something, hey, Danny, I'm going to tell you a fact, I cannot ask you to forget it in the next five minutes. Right? By design, you cannot forget it. Many of these things in the models are kind of like that also, depending on how you use them, depending on how you actually, where do you actually put this data, which means that all things around it, there's an opportunities on what your value proposition is going to be and what you can create. You've done three startups. You were at Sun, which had its like its era where it was this dominant technology that just disappeared. What is the hardest lesson you have learned in your years in Silicon Valley, doing startups, running companies, building teams, managing people? I don't know if there's an experience or two that is like seared in your brain, like, oh my goodness, I not going to do that again, or this thing that you've kind of learned and held on to? Two things I would say, when things change, you have to be very nimble and adjust. I think Sun, with Linux came in, I mean, that's not the only reason for them, but Linux came in and they just held on to Solaris, right? And they could have open sourced that and that could have been the Linux, right? So when there's a major transformation going on, you have to stay nimble. I mean, when, for instance, when Satya came, he opened up at Microsoft, he opened up, it wasn't just like a wall garden of just Microsoft only. Yeah. It was like, yeah, it's okay. Bring all, all kinds of stuff and integrate, right? So, But that's more, than, that's more than being nimble. That's more, it's like kind of sacrificing the cows that you don't, you know, the, the, you have to kind of be like, no, okay, well, this has been our business, but now we're going to take this huge risk and just open it up or com- 
completely kind of disrupt ourselves willingly. Sometimes you just have to say, okay, that's what the ecosystem looks like now. And either you hold on to it, but when the wind is clearly blowing in, in some ways, you got to leverage your asset. They could have leveraged Solaris. And that was an awesome operating system. And I think, of course, that's not the only reason for them. There were many other reasons, but that's one of the key reasons that could have been the anchor for them uh, also. I think that, that's really what it is. I mean, as you were mentioning, there's always going to be transformational periods, especially in technology ecosystem. That's a good part of technology. And if you can't keep up with it and you can adjust, swiftly adjust, and even if it requires you to give up some certain things, it's hard to stay in tune. And good companies have a way to actually doing it. And uh, I should say great companies have a way to be doing it. And you always aspire to be a great company. So how do you operationalize that? How do you approach it? Because everybody has vested interests, right? You know, like everybody's wedded to the thing that they, the beautiful thing that they've made that maybe nobody wants now. <laughs> <laughs> and it's very hard. I don't think you can say there's one answer to it. I think you have to be as open as you can be and intellectually honest with the realities. And of course, it's very hard. In theory, it's very easy to say that. But if you're emotionally tied to it and you're, yeah. you know, quarter is tied to it and other things are tied, you're not going to give up very easily. But I think if you can step back every time or try hard to say, I'm going to stay intellectually honest and if I need to adjust my products and my offering in any way that I, even if it was designed by us and we were proud of it, we got to move on and do certain things in a different way. Yeah. And I think, I would say there's no one easy answer to it, but as long as you try to be intellectually honest about it, and even if your ego has to be on a side when you're doing some of these things, and our entire team's ego has to be on a side, not just yours, and you, the, your whole thing will be, would we create better value for others and as well as would we benefit alongside with it. And I think a lot of it is that what kind of culture you build within the team, that your egos are on a side and you're actually thinking through the benefit of others, the customers, and and of course, eventually you benefit uh, because of that as a company. Yeah. Also. Well, look, I appreciate you taking the time, but uh, yeah, fascinating, and I wish you uh, all the luck. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure talking to you. Uh, thanks for taking time. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Rehan. I want to thank you all for listening, for the ratings, for the reviews, for telling your friends and neighbors about the pod. I am writing about a bunch of stuff in the paper this weekend. Very busy week for me. So apologies if I feel sound a little bit scattered. My brain is a little bit turned to mush at the moment. But anyhow, do check out the paper at thetimes.co.uk or an actual physical paper. You can also email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk or find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson. Thanks very much and we'll talk to you very soon. Bye-bye. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.